This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Helen is off today, so it's just me and Nina. And today we're doing Andrei Rublev. Nina, you're up. Well, yes, I realize I, I, I picked this, this film and uh, one of the things that you can say about it is that it's quite hard to say anything about it. <laughs> um, I mean, apart from the, in very broad strokes, that it's clearly a, a sort of epically ambitious, insanely beautiful, wide-ranging uh, kind of masterpiece um, of, of Russian cinema, but cinema more broadly, um, I suppose one of the things that struck me most thinking about it again actually was this question of of history and also hiddenness I suppose. So obviously people describe this film often in terms where they invoke kind of mystery or uh, a kind of associative esotericism or you know the strange fragmentary almost dreamlike um nature of the transitions. I mean obviously it's about a real person to some extent. Obviously, it's about a real series of events uh, in in some parts, um, but it's also obscure in its formation and formulation and and practi- uh, practical depiction. And I suppose so. The the two main things that I really thought about were what does it mean to depict history and a particular kind of history? So let's say the history of Christianity in Russia during a period in which that story is not really the acceptable or accepted story. So what does it mean at any time, if you like, to think about history in a way that goes against the present, which would like you to tell a different story or a a specific story about how we got to where we are? And we see this happening all the time, I suppose, in terms of the way in which history is rewritten to suit a particular agenda, for example. So um, in the 1619 uh, project um, and, you know, the way in which um, a particular claim about the present that let's say that America is constitutively and incorrigibly racist um, is then uh, told invoking a particular idea of history that suits that presentist concern with a particular story. And as opposed to that, in Andrei Rublev, we have a very hermetic, esoteric, strange story about Tatars and and Russians of a particular period and the question of artistic inspiration, the question of God-given talent, the question of whether one succeeds in making something and what happens when this thing is then damaged or broken. And in a way, some of these questions are perennial questions about the relationship between God and man and also between man and his creation, um, whether that creation is in the worship of God or in in the name of a higher uh, power. Um, But it's not a story that fits particularly well with the Soviet conceptions of, let's say, the new man or almost a kind of ground zero approach to history. Um, And in fact, to stress the long history of Christianity um, in the Soviet Union via the icons and iconography 
is also to sort of counterpose a question of, of duration and to say that there are things that are longer in our history than the present moment, even if the present moment wants to suggest that it's the only one and it's eternal and it's forever. So I think in that sense, the film is very, very subversive in its hermeticism and in its esoteric um, quality. And, you know, I think that there are periods of history in which that kind of approach, whether we're talking about poetry or literature or cinema or art, makes more sense, that there are things that can't be said directly or if they are said directly, are punished or even the way in which particular questions are posed are punished by virtue of the fact that they seem to indicate, um, you know, uh, a subversive agenda. And I think there's obviously a long history of thinking about um, esoteric writing and writing between the lines and, you know, figures like Leo Strauss talk about this. Um, But I think this question of drawing upon particular historical moments in order to make a point about the present that is oblique and has to be oblique because a direct critique would be too confrontational and would simply result in censorship or punishment of the individual. So I'm interested in this film partly as a form of of, uh, tactical commentary, I suppose, in its very beauty. And and even the, the very fact of presenting such a beautiful scene, albeit one that's also extremely violent and and damaging, is also to um, say something quite profound about the moment in which Tarkovsky was making the film. And I think, too, the question of destruction and the destruction of beautiful objects is also something that struck me very much. Like, what does it... It's, it's obviously very easy to destroy things. It's much easier to destroy things than it is to make things. And... We don't always know the value of things that get destroyed and the meaning of them. It's um, it's a kind of perennial human desire to want to destroy icons of all kinds, whether they be statues or images or pictures. And, you know, there are various religious theories about why you can and can't depict certain things. And it's kind of strange that we we live on the one hand in an age in which Almost everything can be seen. Everything is visible. There are signs and pictures and images everywhere, often really horrific ones. And at the same time, a kind of backlash against the wrong images. So the wrong statues, the wrong depictions, um, you know, which indicates that there is a clear system of valuation going on from the standpoint of the present. So I think those two things largely are what what I took from this film primarily, the question of history and the kind of subversive um, qualities of even invoking history at a moment in which there is supposed to be another history being told or no history at all um, in the name of a present. And I guess the perpetual question of of destruction, which is also the question of, of human finitude and the finitude of work, making work in the face of eternity. Um, but also the how quickly it is to destroy things that are extremely beautiful and, and what persists and what can persist over time. And, and all of the things we've lost, I suppose, in terms of our own human inheritance in the grand scheme of things. All right, I'm up. 
In medieval Russia, if you want to paint, you have to paint for the Orthodox Church, and the Orthodox Church exists to legitimate the Grand Duchy of Moscow. Under the Grand Prince, many churches are being repainted to glorify God and the state. The talented Russian painters, who all start the film in a monastery, can only practice their craft if they make propaganda for these institutions. Initially, they are all eager to be considered masters and envious of one another's successes, but gradually they witness more and more horrors. People get tortured, towns get pillaged, there are quarrels among nobles and raids by steppe peoples. The film grinds down the viewer, and it grinds down Rublev, the greatest of the painters. He stops painting and takes a vow of silence. A church needs a bell, but the master bellmaker is dead. His son falsely claims to know how to make bells to escape his village. The project becomes a boondoggle as the son hires more and more people. They all anticipate execution if the bell fails to ring. Ultimately, by some miracle, it does. The bell brings so much joy that it moves Rublev to paint again. The film's thesis seems to be that ideological art brings comfort to people who suffer and that this justifies it. I have trouble with this. Ideological art is only commissioned to glorify the institutions which cause the suffering in the first instance. The comfort it brings has a pacifying effect. Zizek says ideology is like a set of glasses that enable us to see the world in a comfortable way. Removing the glasses allows us to see the world as it is, but the truth is painful. The monks begin the film as steadfast believers in their ideology. They rat out a subversive singer. They rat out pagans. They compete with one another to receive the honor of making high-tier propaganda. Through the suffering he witnesses, Rublev discovers the world is more complicated than he thought. He stops contributing to the institutions and withdraws from the world. But then what? The film can't end that way. It would be life-denying if it did. Yet the ending we get, an ending in which Rublev resumes making state propaganda because other people find his propaganda pleasant to look at, doesn't satisfy me. The director, Andrei Tarkovsky, clearly projects himself on Rublev. There is very little in the historical record about the life of the painter. We mostly know him through what survives of his work. Rublev was not sainted by the Orthodox Church until 1988, 22 years after this film was made. Tarkovsky eventually defected to the West in 1985, though he maintained he was not a political dissident, but merely defected so as to continue making films in peace. At the time, Tarkovsky's son was still in the Soviet Union, and Tarkovsky died before the state collapsed. Western film critics love to imagine Tarkovsky working out his own relationship to the Soviet state through this film. They imagine Tarkovsky running intellectual circles around the Soviet authorities, managing to get a Christian film made in the heavily irreligious Soviet Union. My girlfriend had a different take. It's hard to make art in any context. Most artists have been paupers. A few get to make propaganda for regimes. The propaganda they make in the West isn't any different from Soviet propaganda or Christian propaganda. The arts are dominated by professional gatekeepers. All serious artists know this. It's not news to anybody. To make art about this situation is prideful. It's self-indulgent. Artists should search for a way to share values with people, even if that way is inglorious. If in the end the only way is to be a wanderer, that's what you do. Tarkovsky was fortunate enough to be in a position to make this film, and he spent the film whining about how hard his life is. Where's the truth in it? I am not sure there is any. The film depicts the Middle Ages very negatively. 
and it suggests that the state propagandist is justified if his propaganda is pleasant. The film ends with images of Rublev's work. The black and white gives way to color. We're supposed to be wowed by this. We're meant to believe that Rublev and Tarkovsky are sincere Orthodox Christians. I'm not sure. <laughs> wow. I, that's a very interesting uh, combative, confrontational disagreement we have on this film. <laughs> um, I, I suppose, let, let me say a few things in, in defense of it. I think it was hard to make, from what I understand, and it, he didn't have enough money to make uh, all of what he wanted. There are certain scenes that were cut. Um, I don't read it straightforwardly as a defense of Christianity, although, of course, it could be read in that way, but rather in relation to this question of ideology um, as a way of saying that the current moment, the current ideology, whatever it is, is not the only one and this is not the only level at which we can understand how things work. And, you know, if we think about it in relation to today, we, I suppose, have something like a kind of technocratic materialist ideology that dominates in which you know that we're currently in the midst of a of a of a health crisis in which the state is tethered to big pharma and various forms of um restrictions on uh people's movements uh various and increasing forms of punishment for those who don't um obey the the uh advice to become vaccinated uh, and so on. And, and, you know, we can see this as a kind of, uh, you know, and, and all of this is monitored and su surveilled by a form of technolo technology in the form of apps and tracing and geolocation even and, and so on. And in that sense, there is always an image of man. I mean, every political system has an image at its heart of the kind of man that it creates or that it, that it wants to create or the ideal human so the ideal human from the standpoint of the technocratic biopolitical state would be the one who does what he or she is told in this case stays indoors gets a vaccine wears a mask um you know believes wholeheartedly in quote unquote the science and uh is tethered to various forms of technology and surveillance in the forms of passports and and so on uh, and doesn't use cash and doesn't complain and doesn't write negative things online. And I suppose in the Tarkovsky film, there is another image of man, as opposed to the one that would have been created by the Soviet Union or would have been pushed by the Soviet Union, which very explicitly has an idea of the new man um, as a communist subject. Uh, the collectivist man, the one who is not necessarily unique in any particular way. Um, this obviously mitigates against the idea of the artist and the idea of God-given talent, which is obviously a theme in the um, in the film, uh, alongside the question of ambition. And this doesn't have to be ambition that culminates in success. Yes, the the young bell maker does indeed succeed, um, despite not having the the requisite knowledge. But at the, the opening scene is also of the, the person who wants to fly and dies in this um, crash, you know, simply creates this sort of balloon. And it's, it's, it's a kind of completely 
uh, useless effort, if you like, but something very beautiful about this um, ambition. And, you know, if you have a society in which things like ambition and artistic uh, independence and individuality are discouraged, and you also have a system in which the spiritual realm, however we want to depict it, whether we're talking about religion or um, or something, you know, something along those lines, if that realm is is cut off, you know, and, and we have to be clear that the Soviet Union took part in the attempted destruction of religion, you know, of all kinds, all of all of parts of the Soviet Union. And if you watch Vertov's films, you can see how this is done. And, you know, the destruction of um, uh, various religious buildings and, and so on. And in a sense, most regimes don't have room for other ideologies. They want to say that their way of thinking about things is the best way. And it's very interesting if you look at some of the anti so-called anti-vax marches today or these, you know, protests against lockdown. They're not only anti-vax marches, we have to say. There are various people have various different disagreements with the state that can't be reduced simply to not wanting to take a vaccine. Um, but many of the people protesting are religious. And we can see how this commitment to another way of thinking and another temporality and another set of morality would would be a problem that would put people at odds, I think, with this technocratic biopolitics, just as Tarkovsky's image of the artist and also of a relation to God um, puts him at odds with the Soviet ideology. Yeah, I, I saw it really as, as, yes, not in keeping with the Soviet perspective, but as a consequence of that, very Western liberal. I saw the artists in this film not as real old-fashioned medieval Christians, but as Western artists, Western artists in a context that is illiberal, who uh, are really interested in pursuing relatively bourgeois values, the value of being honored as better than other people, the value of uh, making something that's pleasurable. It's the Western artist who, who tries to just make something pleasurable, who tries to just get ahead and get preeminence of other Western artists. So what I, what I saw in these monks was not the behaviors that I would associate with medieval monks. It was the behaviors that I would associate with Western liberal artists. And so I kept thinking about woke. I, I kept seeing them as the woke artists who are just trying to appease the uh, the regime and are eventually disenchanted by that, but don't come up with any meaningful way of resisting or challenging it, instead withdrawing and then eventually returning to making the same kind of art. So I, was, I wasn't seeing them as, as dissidents. I was seeing these monks as uh, you know, really regime artists. And I was seeing them very much as similar to people who make woke films, since the dominant paradigm in our society is that paradigm. I, 
I suppose I, I want to <laughs> continue to defend the possibility of a different articulated relationship between the making of finite work and a relation to eternity. I wonder how many woke artists today, quote unquote, not that many artists would describe themselves as woke artists, let's be clear, but let's say those who who feed into that way of seeing the world think that their work is also a contribution to eternity. Well, I think that they think that their work is a contribution to some kind of long, eternal, progressive struggle for a better world. I, I see a lot of parallels between Christianity as it is practiced in the modern world and woke politics. I think they have a lot in common. I think that they're uh, the attitude of the of the religious dissident in Eastern Europe is very similar to the uh, attitude of the kind of faux dissident woke liberal. Both of these projects ultimately culminate in the same kind of thing, which is a bourgeois state. The Soviet Union collapses and gives way to a bourgeois state. And so, yes, there's all sorts of things that are wrong with the Soviet project. But when I'm watching this, I was thinking more about the Soviet dissident movement, what the Soviet dissident movement culminated in, and the ways in which that also in turn failed the peoples of the Soviet Union. I mean, I sort of want to say that the struggle or the collapse of communism and its consequent further collapse into liberalism <laughs> or capitalism. Um, is is not the the fault or the desired outcome of those dissidents in the Soviet Union. I mean, I think it's almost impossible to for people to predict. You you know, it's it's much easier to say what's wrong with the particular moment you're in than it is to predict the outcomes of the better moment that you want. Right. We say the same thing about the '60s hippies in the West. They, of course, did not intend to usher in a period of neoliberalism. But that is precisely what their activism eventually culminated in. And I see a lot of similarities between the kind of Soviet hippie and the American hippie of the 60s. There's this kind of focus on the individual as an emancipation point against uh, conformity. The individual uh, is, is seeking to be seen as distinctive from a conformist black. Right, all of that is is also in '60s American art from the same period. So I, I see a lot of running together. I think that the reason that Tarkovsky is so feted by Westerners from this period who like hippie art is that he's a hippie, and I think his work is is similar to that work, well intended, but it ultimately goes to the same place, which is neoliberalism. Wow. Um, <laughs> I well, okay. Let's 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 take this by the horns. I mean, what's wrong with being an individual? Well, there's nothing wrong with being an individual, but there is something with, wrong with being an individualist. What What does an individualist want? Well, an individualist is not is is discarding social embeddedness out of pride 
Okay. <laughs> and, and you know, this results in, I think, the the kinds of pride that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. There's the pride of thinking that uh, one's successes are one's own, and that other people's failures are their own fault of not seeing individuals as embedded in social context. I think that the hippie movement's focus on the individual led to that, uh, to the get a job mentality. And also a kind of pride, which is a pride in thinking that uh, the pursuit of pleasure is defensible, provided that one's pleasures are better than other people's pleasures, right? So if you make pleasurable art, but it's the right kind of pleasure that therefore a life that is kind of hedonistic or, or built around pleasure seeking, seeking out pleasurable sounds, pleasurable images, that that is a self-justifying thing. So there's a kind of stoic pride and a kind of Epicurean pride, both of which I associate with neoliberalism. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of that goes into the mentality of our woke professional class. The woke professional class uh, thinks that it is the responsibility of other people to educate themselves, to develop the kinds of desires that they have. They have pure desires that therefore don't need to be fed or don't need to be regulated, right? And in this film, the ultimate justification for the art is that people find it pleasurable. It's not that it's true per se, or that it grasps at truth. The reason that you know the bellmaker has no fundamental understanding of truth, the bellmaker goes and makes a bell because he wants to get out of his horrible village. And then the bell rings and it makes everybody happy because it rang, and so they don't all get killed. But there isn't really any profound spiritual truth there. It's just people trying to avoid suffering. It's very Epicurean to me. I, I I highly disagree. <laughs> um, I mean, Tarkovsky, I mean, for what it's worth, does suggest that he um, is interested only in, in the search for, for truth. He says the artist's aim is, is truth. Um, well, yeah, everybody says that. <laughs> but what is, what's actually happening in the film? Well, I, I mean, I, th I think... You know, I mean, the the particular relation of the icon, I mean, I've been teaching this course on angels lately. Uh, so I've been thinking about religious art and, you know, depictions of angels and halos and, and so on. And, and in a way, the icon is something like a portal. So the, the icon is, it may or may not be in itself beautiful, but sometimes this doesn't matter to religious thinkers. You can, of course, have better or worse icons, and some people spend their whole life painting icons um but their function is not primarily one of pleasure in the kind of immediate sort of hedonistic sense but rather i think a kind of yeah like a portal for reflection or something that operates on a different time scale than than something that is merely consumed. I mean, this is this is like a, a huge question for art. I mean, is what's the relationship between enjoyment and beauty, or you know, in the question of taste, uh, where, whether something is agreeable or whether we say it's beautiful, and the Kantian, you know, opposition between those two things. And if we say that something is is beautiful, we at least according to Kant, demand a kind of subjective universal assent so that anyone who would be in our position would say the same thing. And beauty is not in the object, but it's in the free play of the 
the faculties and the harmony of the faculties such that we are made aware of our own capacity as such by virtue of being human. And and this in itself is pleasure, but it's not the same kind of pleasure as enjoying a cake or, I don't know, something like that. Not that there's anything wrong with enjoying a cake. I mean, maybe there is, but... Um, I, I don't disagree with you in your mm. description here of the role of icons. And I think that a film could defend icons on this basis. Mm-hmm. But And I think probably the real Rublev did make his icons with that kind of attitude to them. But I don't think that this film is doing that. And I don't think Tarkovsky is doing that. I think the Rublev that is depicted in this film uh, is stealing valor from the real Rublev. And from the real Rublev's icons, but they. But I, I mean, think because we don't actually see icons made for that purpose in this film. The icons that are made in this film are made in the beginning of the film as a way of glorifying and seeking preeminence, and at the end of the film as a way of bringing pleasure to the audience. But the icons in the film that are, you know, the, the artists in the film never make icons with this kind of purpose or intentionality. Every artist that we meet in this film is making icons for some other reason. But do you not think that even if we approach historical artifacts from a different position, you know, let's say as as liberal, post-religious, I don't know, observers, that we can't understand something of that desire to mediate or to reflect a greater image of glory, for example? I think we could, but I don't think this film is doing that. I think this film wants us to believe it's doing that, but I don't buy that that's what is really happening because nobody, no artist in the film actually makes art with that kind of reverence. Everybody in this film is seeking glory or pleasure for the audience. But but one another way of looking at it would be to say that even though human beings are inevitably flawed and finite and petty and envious and you know tied up with their own concerns, nevertheless there is a sense in which they or some of them who are given talent can create objects that transcend those petty those pettinesses and in a way depicting the pettiness of historical figures is. I don't know, in a way, even more draws our attention to the fact that art can itself break or transcend those things. Um, you know, how is it possible that that horrible human beings can make completely beautiful things? And often artists are the worst people. I mean, this is like, you know, our age is currently struggling once again with the question of individual morality, you know, because artists and such people are generally are quite often terrible people you know and and they're often sort of brilliant for the same reasons that they are awful (laughs) well depends on what we're looking for in the art so i think that a lot of art that is pleasurable to look at or listen to is made by terrible people a lot of art that is purely about appeal to the senses is made by terrible people but i think it's very difficult for a, a bad person to make art that is true It's easy for a bad person to make art that's pleasurable, but hard for a bad person to make art that's true. I I completely disagree with this. I I think that, in fact, often people who have 
been, let's say, you know, seriously addicted or seriously outside of norms um, and are nevertheless able to make art at various points, can perceive truth or truths in a different and better way than people who don't undergo extreme experiences? Well, extreme experiences, but I think ultimately, if you really understand what what is good, if you really understand the good, then the understanding of the good causes you to live your life in a way which reflects that. And so if you don't really understand it, I don't think that you can live life in a way which fully reflects it. What you get is, is approximations that in some ways deviate. Plato says mimesis. Mm-hmm. You, you get these imitations of it that are easily mistaken for being good because they in various ways cater to our senses or our impulses but which distort it in subtle ways which have large consequences over time. And I think that this is, at a, in general, a lot of the art of the hippie movement that was made often, uh, you know, often by people who were not wonderful people or indulged in the use of all kinds of substances. Uh, you know, I think a lot of it was deceptively beautiful. But not really true. It looked good, though. I um, yeah, I, I'm really not sure about this. I think I mean we'd have to unpick what you mean by true. I think that it's certainly true that if we're looking at the history of Western thought, that art often presents itself as a seduction or an allure and. You know, for the ancient Greeks, the endless battle between Apollo and Dionysus in terms of these tensions within humanity itself in relation to order and chaos um, and in a way how much uh, you can take from chaos and shape it. Um, And of course, you know, Plato's sort of infamous edicts around music in the Republic um, and what what should and shouldn't be heard um, and the problem of of poets in particular and the kind of seductive nature of storytelling and uh, that kind of allure. Um, But a too well-regulated society in which everybody behaves in a particular way um, may not actually create things that are particularly meaningful. They would create regime art. They would create art that, you know, only reflects back the order. So, I mean, let's, let's, I don't know, not talk about individuals so much, but rather about tendencies in populations um, in relation to questions of free, freedom, maybe, or the exploration of what it means, means to be free and to have freedom of expression. You know, we don't want to live in a world, presumably, in which people are censored or self-censor um, to such a degree that no interesting art is made and nobody says anything different from anybody else. I mean, this is a highly um, totalitarian way of seeing things. Um, And we do want to defend, I suppose, something like the imagination 
and also the capacity for expressing thoughts and ideas, particularly, I think, ones that are unpalatable to the society in which they occur. Yeah. I think what tends to happen is we get into pendulum mm. pendulum things, where there, the 60s is a case where there's an excess of conformity in the Soviet Union, in the United States, right? And so, of course, there needs to be some kind of correction to that, right? But the tendency with pendulum problems is that the correction is always an overcorrection. And so the correction feels true because there is something right about moving away from the conformity, right? But where it ultimately goes is not better. And in many ways, it ends up being worse, right? What we end up getting is we swing from a 60s post-war conformity to the conformity we now experience of woke neoliberalism and all of its gatekeeping and all of its self-censorship and all of its cancellation, right? And we get there through this medium of individualism, where the individualism swings in terms of the individual self-glorification, and then this gets taken up in the 90s by Iris Marion Young and so on uh, to be group, group recognition and group identity recognition, right? Uh, and these identity groups are treated as individuals, as having the kind of essence which individuals have, as having their own essential, purposive, historical being. Right? Yeah, just like on- corporations are too. <laughs> right, just like corporations are, right? And so this individualism becomes a vehicle for the identity group, for the corporation, right? I think that the truth always was, was somewhere between those two things. And so there's something in the context of the 60s, this is going to feel true, because it is critiquing something which is increasingly obvious to everyone in the 60s is wrong with the post-war consensus. But it doesn't ultimately find, it doesn't ultimately help us find the truth. What it does is it plunges us into another version of the same thing, but which is layered over with, with a thicker coat of ideology so that the whole thing is harder to see. The really convenient thing about Tarkovsky is that when Tarkovsky doesn't have money to make a movie, or isn't allowed to make a movie. It's straightforward. The Soviet authorities, the Soviet censors have denied him the money, or they've said he can't do that, right? And it's the state saying it, and it's very obvious. And now we have a a version of the same thing, but which happens informally through an opaque gatekeeping process. And so we've ended up back where we started, but with another coat of bullshit on top of it so that the whole thing is harder to see, harder to confront, more mystified, right? And we get there through the very thing which comes out of these these 60s resistance films. Those things ultimately lead us into the worst version of the thing which they're originally created to oppose. And so as I'm watching it, I'm going, what we needed was something which was a kind of more pluralistic collectivity, right? Without repudiating collectivity, without repudiating community. And the thing that I felt was really missing from this film was any sense of community, which surely was the thing which kept people together in the Middle Ages. You don't really get a sense that these monasteries, these towns, that they're places 
what you get is this kind of dreamlike uh, series of, of horrible events which occur around Rublev that he, with, with many people passing in and out of his life, most of whom you aren't really going to know, the, remember the names of, many of whom you're not really going to recognize scene to scene, especially because if you're not a native Russian speaker, a lot of the characters are going to have similar kinds of voices. A lot of the men are bearded. There is a, a kind of similarity to them. And I think that you know, what we needed is a sense of place where there's room for people to add what is distinctive about what they can add to that place. But we don't really get a sense of place in these movies. What we get is a kind of, there's a stultifying conformity, which is placeless. The kind of conformity which we'd associate with modern totalitarianism. And there's no, there's no sense that the individual is really embedded in anything. So the individual is kind of alienated or isolated from the stultifying conformity and there's, there's, those two things are too polar. There's no possibility of rapprochement between the two. And I think the real solution to the 60s was some kind of rapprochement, which we never get. By the time communitarianism is even really being broached as a subject, uh, the, the cat's out of the bag and, and community can only come back in a kind of mutilated form as I identity group. Yeah, sure. I mean, leaving the film to one side for a second, I think... You know, and I, I don't think films need to be didactic in this in this way. But so I think there is more than enough room for a kind of, you know, whatever, even you know, anti-left <laughs> or anti-communal, you know, depiction of religion and talent and individualism and surrealism and and so on. But I, it it is very interesting and important to note. I think having you know, I've been teaching this course on post-liberalism which finished a few weeks ago and when you're looking at all of the critiques let's say all the you know whether post-liberalism refers to a new period or new regime but rather a or something like a kind of diagnosis you know I mean it's a kind of critical term I think at the moment rather than a new uh you know fully formed uh political uh position but one of the things that that is obviously characteristic of a post the diagnosis of post liberalism, whether you're looking at left wing critiques, liberal critiques, right wing critiques of liberalism, um, or religious critiques of liberalism, is this uh, critique criticism of the individual. Right, it's manifestly clear that the individual, the notion of the individual that you're referring to, uh, the liberal individual, but more particularly, let's say the 20th century, particularly post war consumerist, hedonistic, you know, self-absorbed, selfish individual um, has, I don't know, for want of a better word, has failed as an image of man <laughs> or woman, for that matter. And that all of these post-liberal criticisms from left to right to religious to secular all refer to the need for more medium-sized ways of thinking about social embeddedness, whether it's the parish, the church, notions of populism, uh, you know, community based on, I don't know, ethnos or based on uh, interest or affiliation or family ties or, or whatever, right? They're, every single one of these critiques are, you know, mourning the loss and proposing instead 
are either a return to more traditional forms of community or proposing that we have new forms of community of one kind or another. There's no doubt about it. And what you what you call social embeddedness. And it's clear, I think, and this goes back to the film, that there is a difference, I would say, between, nevertheless, between the kind of godless individual, the individual for whom the regime is the only thing that matters, and in fact, matter is the only thing that matters because they're strictly material, materialist, um, in both senses of that word, <laughs> um, as in the only things that are real are what uh, we can see and experience, and the only things that are real are things that are valued from the standpoint of a consumerist capitalist system. So this notion of the godless individual and the fantasy of the disembedded, um, completely isolated homo economicus or um, however you want to put it, um, is over, I think, or at least the, the diagnosis is very present, clear and present, that this is no longer a, a, a useful or even accurate or truthful way of understanding who we are. Um, but I think in the film, there is a difference between the godless individual of the 60s and the kind of uh, emphasis on pleasure seeking and so on. And the characters here, and it's not that they're not flawed. And, and one of the things that maybe is, is crucial here is I think that in Christianity, it's manifestly clear that, that one of the founding assumptions about what it means to be human is that you are born into sin and that you are of necessity um, an incomplete being who is in many ways uh, a sinner and, and weak and will always make mistakes and is not perfect and in fact can no way emulate perfection but can only in a way strive to become more Christ-like. And I think this is a very different notion of the individual that we have, the godless individual, for whom in a way, pleasure is uh, fully self-sufficient, that, that one can be self-sufficient not only materially, economically, socially, sexually, politically, aesthetically, and so on, um, but that in a way, none of those things are wrong, or at least there's no way of being wrong and being that type of godless individual. You are simply who you are, if you like, and it's all good. You know, of course, some people might still go to prison if they behave in excessive ways, but otherwise, um, that's it. You know, everything you do is good. You know, it's like the old joke, the Onion article from early 2000s, like everything a woman now does is feminist. You know, <laughs> um, there's no difference between uh, what somebody does and what it means, the value that it takes on. And I do think that the it's the specificity of the depiction of Christianity in this film that saves it from being simply a celebration of the godless individual, the selfish individual, in the way that you're critiquing, rightly critiquing. Well, I suppose it really comes down to whether you take Rublev as he's depicted in this film to be sincerely religious. And I certainly think that we are meant to believe that he is. I just, I really had a hard time buying it. It just never, he never seemed to me to be interested in in art for the right kinds of reasons. 
at every point in the film when he made art, he made it for some other reason. But I, I don't know. Again, I think there's a difference between, you know, I don't know, let's say having to be paid for your work and the outcome of that work and the influence or the, you know, what that work might mean in a different way. And uh, how to put it, I mean, what what do you mean by sincerely religious too? Well, the only Part point in the film where I really bought him as religious was the point where he decided he wasn't going to make any more art. And when he decided he was going to uh, punish himself for his sins by taking the vow of silence. At that point, I bought him as, as sincerely religious. And he says in this scene, he's been living his life the wrong way, you know, almost as if he was, you know, in a Zizekian sense going, I've been going through life wearing the glasses. I'm now taking the glasses off. I'm not going to paint again. Right. Mm -hmm. And I really bought that scene. And I thought that was really something where he talks to the uh, imagined uh, mentor, the Greek, the Greek mentor, and they have a whole conversation about, you know, he's been making this art for these people and these people are, are monstrous. I, I bought that scene. And I thought that was really an interesting, interesting scene. And then, you know, you can't leave it there. I recognize that. And it would be unsatisfying if that were the end of the film. The film needs an ending. But the ending we get, and it seems that the critics really like that last sequence with the bell. But I found that sequence really frustrating because ultimately, the guy who makes the bell. There is nothing going on in that bell making that is particularly spiritual. It's just this guy trying to get out of his plague-ridden village. And you know, the bell rings and they're spared by the grace of God. And everybody is so happy because they're not going to be killed. And their friends and family members aren't going to be killed because he hired so many people. Mm. to work on this bell project. And they're all going to be, everyone who's part of the bell project is going to be killed if the bell doesn't ring. So everybody he hires as he expands the bell project is just another person who is implicated by this, by this bell if it doesn't ring. And so, of course, everybody is so grateful when it rings because everybody knows somebody who worked on this bell who would potentially be implicated. But ultimately, it's all just about avoiding suffering. And that's what ultimately motivates Rublev to resume the painting. And there's no better reason than that. And I just, I, I thought that was such a poor reason for the Rublev in the film to resume painting. He still murdered somebody. He still killed somebody. He still owes God a vow. He took a vow of silence. Yes, and he but he breaks it. He breaks it to comfort the boy who's in, yes, great, to, in great distress. He comforts the boy by telling him, You made people happy. The bell ringing was pleasurable for people. Therefore, it's fine. It's all fine because people enjoyed it. Well, but this I, person, he put the whole town at risk by hiring all these people onto his bell project. But I think making great art and beautiful art is often like this. It's often, 
very dangerous in a certain way. And I, I think that that's not the reason he comforts him or that's not the whole story and the comforting of the boy. The The boy is, doesn't get a feeling of pleasure from the bell succeeding because in a way the thing that really is at the kernel of the boy's identity is the fact his relationship to his father and the fact that his father didn't pass on the, the secret of how to make the the bell work and the, the bell works anyway in this mysterious way. Somehow the boy nevertheless knows how to mm. to stop the bell from cracking or, you know, it it works. And Yeah, he's spared. Yeah. The boy is the spared. The boy is spared. But but and the boy is sad because the boy knows that what he did was wrong. And he's told by Rublev that it doesn't matter because everybody enjoy it rang and everybody enjoyed it. Well, I think that the other, well, the the way I read that scene was was not only that this was an act of great compassion to break the silence on Rublev's part, but also that the recognition of a certain aptitude or skill transcends the transmission of skill, right? So the idea that some people are naturally good at certain things, and this is a theme in the film to do with talent being God-given and the question of whether it is a sin to waste talent. You know, but the bellmaker had to hire an enormous number of people, far more than his father would have hired, and he put all these people in danger because he didn't really know what he was doing. But this and is he turned it into an expensive boondoggle. No, but he made a beautiful bell that involved the entire community. If you want a depiction of communities coming together, I mean, it's like when you see prehistoric mounds. Where you, you know, if you go to Wiltshire and you see Silbury Hill or the ditch around Avebury. And these things took thousands of years with hundreds of people just randomly digging for no apparent reason. But these people reason. weren't all doing it because they were <laughs> believers. They were doing it because they were hired, because they would be destitute without the work, and they're doing it under the threat of execution if the bell doesn't ring. So I don't. I didn't see it as devotional. I don't think it. I don't think it needs to be in that sense. I mean, to create something beautiful is often to undergo vast amounts of hardship. I mean, most of the great, beautiful things that have ever been created by humanity have involved various forms of exploitative, if not outright, slave labour and, you know, horrific working conditions and, and so on. And, you know, is it better that everybody lives safely and nobody makes any great art than... We live dangerously, and and there are beautiful things. But I think in the Middle Ages, when that happened, at least people really believed. And I didn't get the sense that people really believed. I got the sense that everybody was just kind of out for themselves. Everybody was just trying to survive and trying to get out of their village and trying to be regarded as as worthy. He wants to be regarded as, as a great bellmaker, even though his father didn't view him in the way he wanted to be viewed. And so he goes and gets this whole community involved in, in his attempt to glorify himself and to escape his village when his father, I'm sure his father had some kind of reason for not giving the secret. And probably because his son would never make a bell for the right kind of reason. His son would never make a bell because he really appreciates bells but only as a way of glorifying himself. That's probably why the father didn't give the secret up. And the son finally realizes his luck at the end. He bursts into tears because he realizes that he 
put himself and all of the people around him in such great danger. And it was only through God's grace that he was spared the consequences of what he did. And then this man, Rublev, comes up to him and says, it's fine because everybody liked it. And now we're going to go around and you who don't know how to make bells, really, and only got lucky through God's grace, we're going to go around and you're going to make more bells. Wow. And I see, that's just how I read it. And I, I know that that's not what is intended, but that's that's what I got out of it. I went, wait, this man doesn't know how to make bells. He was saved by God's grace. If you're going to take it in a spiritual direction, then the bell only rings by the grace of God. But, so what, he's going to go make more bells now? Yes, but, but through the process God will of- not save them again. <laughs> God saved them but once. Now he, knows they got how, lucky. now he knows how to make bells. And, you know, if the if the moral of the story was don't involve an entire village who might be executed on pain of making a bell that breaks the first moment it rings, then God would not have intervened if that was supposed to be the lesson, you know? No, no. God <laughs> God intervenes because God knows that this that this bellmaker will will realize how lucky he was and he won't continue to uh, to put everybody at risk for his own glorification. That should be the theme. And and then instead it becomes the reason that they both go around continuing to make art. I I really did not like that ending. Well, but but don't you think that one of the other ways of seeing that scene is you know, that the, the boy nevertheless knew how to make the bell because there is something genetic or inherited about talent or particular aptitudes that is then not... where does God come into it? The only way that it's spiritually meaningful is if God's grace saves them from their mistake and causes the bell to ring, even though it had no business ringing. But there's no mistake. If the boy built the bell, the bell and knew how to make the bell properly without having been told formally in this kind of educative, you know, transmission sense, it, you know, and this goes back to the question of whether talent is God given and whether it is a sin to waste the talent that you've been given. It's manifestly clear that some people are better at some things than others, right? We all have but different- But the filmmaker isn't good at it. He, he, he didn't do it the way that his father said that it should be done. That's why people tried to resist the way he was telling them how to make the bell. And then he ends up hiring an enormous number of people. So he makes the bell in this incredibly wasteful way that is not at all in keeping with the tradition of how to make bells. And the only reason anybody lets him get away with it is because his father was a great bell maker. I think it's a fantastic bell. It sounds beautiful. Everyone thinks it's wonderful. I'm really into the bell. The bell is, you know, it's there is something completely pointless and violent and aggressive and unnecessary about great art. This is, I think, one of the points of the, the film, you know, including making this film itself, you know, that there is something kind of absolutely excessive and grotesque about the act of creation that is complete. I think it lets it lets these artists off the hook. I view these artists as analogs for the contemporary professional class, and I think the film lets the contemporary professional class what, off the hook. What, what equivalent of the bell or the icons or the contemporary professional class making, for goodness sake? What apps, you know? Well, that's the thing. I don't think the real bells and the real icons were made in that way. I think the people who made the actual bells and the actual icons were really sincere believers and that they really were pursuing truth. But in this film, nobody does that. And so I think the film steals valor from the actual Rublev, the actual one who made the icons, who probably had an entirely different relationship to those icons from the relationship depicted in the film. We have no information about his life and Tarkovsky could make up anything he wanted. 
<laughs> within the purviews of what the Russian censors would let him get away with. But it's not supposed to be a documentary. I mean, it's a kind of, you know, meditation on various questions and various ideas. And Right. But that's why I'm saying I think it's I think it's fake Christian. It it steals <laughs> valor from Christianity in the service of a liberal project. But I but I think this idea of true belief. I mean, you know, if you if you talk to actual Christians, um I, they're not sort of like some holy cast of people who who live wildly differently. Um I don't think and and I don't think that would have also been the case uh in the 15th century. I think No, but there there are people doing their best. And I think that when you're doing your best, you're at least trying to get at what's true. You're at least making an effort. And yes, that effort is fraught and it is all the time disrupted by human frailties and foibles. The ideal Christian is not a saint, but it is someone who keeps trying. The ordinary ideal Christian is just someone who tries and tries, even though they're often in situations that confound them and lead them into sin. They keep trying. They keep trying to get at the truth. Nobody is able to live a life just consistently pursuing the truth and making no mistakes, but that is what they're, you know, the truth is at least the thing that they're trying to get at. The good is at least what they're trying to get at, uh, even when they screw up, even when they're, they're led into mistakes. But in this film, it's not like people are pursuing the good and make mistakes. In this film, people straightforwardly pursue status and pleasure. Straightforwardly, not as a you know attempt to get at the good, which is a mistake. They straightforwardly make the art for these reasons. That's what frustrates me about it. It's not like great Christian art shows you know, how pride leads someone who is trying very hard to be a good person to nonetheless make mistakes and nonetheless uh, commit sins. And, and so the person who is trying to be good, nonetheless, falters and then has to deal with their faltering, has to deal with the situations they've been plunged into that they weren't able to navigate skillfully, right? Here, we don't have someone who is really trying to be good who makes mistakes. We have people who are just trying to get ahead and they're just trying to make stuff other people enjoy. And that's... I, I'm not saying that the real Rublev was a perfect man, but I think he was better than this man. I think he was better than this Rublev. <laughs> okay, I'm going to finish by reading a quote from Tarkovsky. He says, Whether one wishes to fly before it has become possible, or cast a bell without having learned how to do it, or paint an icon, all these acts demand that for the price of his creation, man should die, dissolve himself in his work, give himself entirely. That is the meaning of the prologue. The man flew, and for that he sacrificed his life. And you, are, you remain unmoved by this <laughs> attempt. I, I just think that the man should care a little bit more about the people around him than to put all their lives in danger for his, his glory. Fair enough. All right. Well, that was fun. We're going to go do the B-side now. And I think that's going to be a blast, too. Uh, you can hear that on our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash lackpodcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. We hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.